0: Let's uh, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. One more time. Happy Boxing Day. Uh, I still use a paper calendar, and my paper calendar on December twenty sixth always says Boxing Day in the UK, Australia, uh, and I had honestly thought, is there a day set aside for boxing up your Christmas decorations? Is that a holiday in other parts of the world? I didn't know, Um, but now in the era of the internet, you don't have to not know anything. So I've looked it up, and I've found that Boxing Day is a tradition that began during Queen Victoria's reign in the 1800s, has nothing to do with the sport of boxing. Uh, It probably comes from a time when the rich used to box up gifts and give them to the poor. Uh, Boxing Day was traditionally a day off for servants. They were on duty on Christmas Day, of course, so they had the 26th off, and then their wealthy landowner uh, employers would give them a box of Christmas, for Christmas. So you could kind of picture, if this helps you at all, just for me, um, a scene from Downton Abbey where all the downstairs servants are walking off with nice box Christmas gifts. And Lord Lady Grantham are waving goodbye to them as they leave the Abbey and make their way home there, so either way. Uh, we're left with really an important question today. What do we do now that Christmas Day has come and gone? In some liturgical traditions, such as the Anglicans or the Lutherans, this is this is the beginning of the season that's known as Christmastide. It's a 12-day season, which is where we get our, our 12 Days of Christmas song from, so if you're also wondering where that came from, it's from the 12 Days of Tide. We don't come from that tradition, so we really are left rather abruptly right here, December 26th, to ponder what exactly has happened and what do we do now? Christmas Day is when we recognize that one of the most dramatic moments in all of human history has occurred. It's not that the gods have come and visited human beings, but it's actually that the God, the one true God, has become a human being. We call this the Incarnation, and this is the culmination of all that we've been waiting for during this season of Advent. Christ has come in the flesh. God now has skin and bones. And yet, for all the drama, there is this sense in the biblical accounts and the Gospels that not, uh, not, this was not all obvious to everyone. It was not all obvious what exactly all this meant. In the Old Testament, prophets told us this was coming. So Isaiah talks about a child that is going to be born for us, and Micah said it would happen in Bethlehem. And then Matthew and Luke, which are the gospel accounts that record the birth of Jesus, they hold on to these these backstories, and they share a lot of things that are pointing to this dramatic moment in history. For example, angels are visiting Zechariah and Mary and Joseph, and those are dramatic moments. But those characters respond with varying degrees of doubt and fear and suspicion and willingness. There are these mysterious visitors that come from faraway lands, and the king is disturbed and fearful, but shepherds are joyful. But with all that was known in anticipation of the Incarnation, In so many ways, it was simply not what many were expecting. Uh, When it comes to the reality of the incarnation, the same could be said about that very first Christmas. It was that they weren't expecting that. They were focusing on other things. We've talked about this uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas during Advent, that maybe one of the things, one of the more pressing needs of the people of Israel at that time was that they were occupied by Rome. And it would have been reasonable for them to, to hope that, uh, that the, the coming, um, what, was, what was coming would be relief from their Roman occupiers. And maybe that is what they were expecting. But maybe they weren't expecting that for two more important reasons. One of those would be that they had actually lost sight of what Yahweh, their God, was like. And the other reason was that they had lost sight of their greatest need. So first, they had lost sight of what Yahweh, their God, was like. Uh, I've been reading through the Old Testament this year, and you finish the Old Testament reading a, a lot of the prophets, who have these frequent reminders of these surprising ways that the Israelites were influenced by foreign gods of the surrounding nations. And, and I, I'm really surprised. You might think, how in the world could, could the Israelites lose sight of Yahweh, the one true God. I mean, they're his people. He is their God. But they did. And I do think that's a, that's a cautionary tale for us as well. The foreign gods that had crept into the, uh, the imagination of Israel strangely resembled nothing at all like what Yahweh was. These foreign gods were demanding and petty, and they required a lot of sacrifice, in some cases child sacrifice. And shockingly, there were some in Israel who complied. These gods tended to be aloof and relatively unconcerned with the affairs of human beings. They, they were distant. They were the kind of gods that you never really made happy. You only hoped to keep appeased so that they would not unleash their fury on you. And that's just no way to live. There is no joy, there is no hope, there is no peace, and there is no love. And as hard as it is to imagine that Israel could lose sight of God, don't we find ourselves believing rival stories about what God is like? That he's too demanding, he's perpetually disappointed in us, he's never pleased, he's asking more from us than we can Possibly meet. He's kind of distant, not very near. Well, if you follow the entire storyline of Scripture, you, you come to realize that that's not at all how God is revealed. And I want to show you one important aspect of that by going back to the very beginning where I think God first reveals his fundamental character in Genesis 1. In verses 1 through 2, it says these familiar words In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Out of chaos and disorder, God brought order and being. Why? Well, Greg Thompson, who is a former Presbyterian pastor in Virginia, now he's a Martin Luther King Jr. scholar, and he was a childhood friend of BP's, uh, I heard him speak at a conference and he said this he says that creation came into being because God is a yearning host God exists in a trinity we you know that a trinity of relationships father son holy spirit and they're bound together in what greg thompson says is a is a an endless call and response an invitation and participation and embrace can you kind of picture the trinity like that they're filled full. There is nothing missing, nothing lacking. And God exists in his very essence as an act of loving welcome. God created all things not because he needed anything or needed to be appeased, like the, the foreign gods and the nations that surrounded Israel, but out of a out of a desire to welcome. God created the world to invite the world into his own loving life. So creation is fundamentally an act of invitation. All elements of creation are intended as guests of God. And humans are his most honored guests. So our life with God is fundamentally an expression of God's desire to host us. This is what God is like. This is the storyline of Scripture. God has never relented in his desire to host us, to dwell with us as his guests. Uh, Later in Genesis, after sin has entered the picture, he forms a people for himself through Abraham. And then he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, and he dwells with them in the tabernacle in the desert. And then later, his presence literally fills full the the permanent structure, the temple that's in Jerusalem. God's dimension is overlapping with our dimension. Later in the life of Jesus, he even referred to himself as the temple. Uh, In John 2, when Jesus has turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple courts, The religious leaders are interrogating him. Why are you doing this? By what authority do you have this? Give us some kind of sign that says that you can do this. And Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back again. And then a couple of verses later, John says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. That's the incarnation, the ultimate coming together of heaven and earth in Jesus. The incarnation shows us that the fundamental desire of God is to dwell with his people, to be joined together with them. And he will stop at nothing to host humanity as his most honored guests. That is what God is like. But Israel, like us, believed a number of false rival narratives about what God was like. And that's one of the reasons that they weren't expecting that. The second reason they weren't expecting that was because they had lost sight of their greatest need. Now, there was no doubt that the presence of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem was everything from a constant annoyance to a constant threat of life or death. There was nothing normal about life in Jerusalem with Roman soldiers roaming around. There was no flourishing and there was no freedom. That was a problem, and it's it's reasonable to hope that God would take notice and send his long-promised anointed one, which is what Messiah means, to deliver them from their occupiers so that the people could return to worshiping Yahweh as they had been taught to do, but only the problem was way deeper. The problem, the people were not just occupied, they were enslaved, and not just by Rome, but by sin. Zechariah sings about this in Luke 1. After the birth of his son, John the Baptist, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. And then we read this uh, from Paul this morning in our call to worship, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And one of the things that I love about this time of year are these beautiful Christmas carols that we sing that that in these very profound and poetic ways tell us the same truth. O holy night has this line, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. O come, O come Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile there until the Son of God appears. The incarnation reveals to us our deepest need. And it's often not what we like to think it is. If you're anything like me, we're, we're enslaved by our pride or our envy, our appetites or our greed or our fears. A number of years ago at our church in Atlanta, Church of the Redeemer, our pastor John Thomas began a service during Advent by saying this. He said, Advent is a reminder that God is not repelled by your sin, but in fact, He's drawn to it. God is drawn to your sin. That's a, that's a provocative way of saying that, God is drawn to sin. But the idea that a holy God, a desiring God, a yearning host God, would stop at nothing to dwell with his honored guests, going so far as to take on human flesh and to ultimately take on their sin so that they could be reunited to him is in so many ways not at all what most Israelites, and for that matter, what even most of us would expect. And yet I think that is in fact what the incarnation demonstrates. So here we are, December 26th, Boxing Day, what do we do now that Christmas Day, the day we mark the Incarnation, has come and gone? Well, we live out the reality of the Incarnation. And I'm going to suggest that one of the best ways we do this is to do what the Magi did in the passage we read this morning. That we pay attention to light. They saw an unusual light in the sky and it led them to Jesus. It's interesting that apparently no one else in Israel saw this. They weren't expecting that. Yet, in reality, light is a powerful reminder of the incarnation that we carry with us every day, not just during Advent and Christmas. I don't know about you, but... I'm always struck, this time of year and the winter time in Rome, how beautiful our town is. These winter mornings, as the sun starts to rise up on clear days, there's this unique orange hue to the the sunlight that's streaming through the bare trees. It's just unique to this time of year, but I'm just captivated by it. And of course, this time of year, lights are everywhere. We have lights in our trees. uh, We have lights in our houses. There are lights all around town. You know, the clock tower is lit up with these rotating colors of green and red and white. There are lights on the trees downtown. There were lights on every float that came through in the Christmas parade. Barnsley Garden says they have over a million lights right now on their Christmas tour. Lights are everywhere. Isn't it interesting how much we love them? We just love lights. And the Gospel of John zeroes in on this attraction that we have to light I mentioned Luke and Matthew earlier as the Gospels that give us this historical account of Jesus' birth. Well, John, he he has his own way of doing this. He's a little more poetic about it. In fact, John is the Gospel that most intentionally connects the incarnation with creation. The Gospel of John starts with the same words, in the beginning. Genesis 1 starts in the beginning, as I said before, and then there's this this creative act of God, the very first creative act of God is light. Let there be light, God says. They go back to John 1, verses 4 through 5. It says this about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're drawn to lights. If Jesus is the light, and that light is the life that all humanity desires, then there's no wonder that we are drawn to light. My sense is that it's more than mere attraction or curiosity. We're made for light because we're made for life. In verse 3 of John, John 1, John says, Through him, Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In other words, Jesus was there in Genesis 1 when all these creative acts were taking place, including light. They came into being through Jesus. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says, I love this, all of creation is Christ-formed and Christ-bearing. All of creation is, somehow or another, has the shape of Jesus, and all of creation bears Jesus. So, I think that's what's happening when we are struck by the beauty of light. We're we're aware of the presence of Jesus, even when we don't even know it. So, when we turn on the lights, or we light a candle, or even when we have a night light in a child's room, we're gently but profoundly reminded that Christ, who is our life, has come. So in the simplest act of turning on a light or or lighting a candle, we're saying Christ has come. And there is no darkness that can push back against that light. Try it. Turn on a light. Try it when you go home this evening. Turn on a light and say, Christ has come. Christ has come to us. I defy you, darkness, to push back against this light. It can't. It won't. So how do we live out the reality of the incarnation from here? By being people of light. How are we people of light? By being the people that Advent has prepared us to be. By being people of hope, love, joy, and peace. By being people, the Incarnation is equipping us to be. People who remember together what God is like. The perpetually hosting God who longs to dwell with human beings as his honored guests. And who together remember our deepest need that we are captives in need of ransom and rescue. We become the people of light not just for our sakes though. We become the people of light for the sake of the whole world. Uh, Dallas Willard, a philosopher and, and spiritual writer, said this. He said, the most successful work of the church would be the work that turns people into lights in this dark world. In Christ, we are people of light. And keep in mind that all people are inherently drawn to the light because in that light is life. The kind of life that all human beings deep down desire. So we become the people of light as we hope in things other than what the world persuades us to hope in. Namely, that Christ is come. We are people of light as we love, not with a sentimental and transactional love that the world loves with, but with a Christ-like love that bears pain and brings healing. We live as people of light as we usher in peace into the world. And we're people of light as we live lives of joy, anchored not in transient emotions, but in the saving and transforming work of Jesus. The reason for the incarnation is so this day forward, December twenty-six onward, we might know in the clearest possible way that God, our yearning host, we we might know what he is really like. And so that we might know what it means to be forgiven from our sin and invited into transformation and wholeness. A great German theologian, Karl Rahner, has a quote that I'm going to read to you here. Now, Karl Rahner was one of the great theologians of the 20th century. It's really deep. And in this quote here, I think you can almost feel his his irrepressible joy as he talks about Christmas. Listen to this. At Christmas, through his grace-filled birth, God says to the world, I am there. I am with you. I am your life. Do not be afraid to be happy. For ever since I wept, joy is the standard of living that is really more suitable than the anxiety and grief of those who think they have no hope. This reality, this incomparable wonder of my almighty love, I have sheltered safely in the cold stable of your world. I am there. I no longer go away from this world. Even if you do not see me, I am there. It's Christmas. Light the candles, they have more right to exist than all the darkness. It's Christmas. Christmas lasts forever. So let's practice light. Turn on a light and trust that it has more right to exist than any darkness. Let's remember what Yahweh our God is like. And let's remember our deepest need. Let's remind each other of what God is like. Let's be people of light for the sake of the world because they won't be expecting that. I'd like to close by praying a prayer that's found in the Book of Common Prayer for this very day, December 26th, and I think it captures the essence. So join me in this prayer. Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that the same light enkindled in our hearts may shine forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.